Welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C. We're your hosts, Max Frost, Max Tui, and Matt Winesett. Each week, we take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers. Thank you for tuning in. Let's start bantering. At the tender age of 29, Ross Douthat became the youngest ever columnist at the New York Times. He's also a film critic at National Review and the author of several different books, all excellent, and he's the denizen of many different podcasts, none better than this one today when he joined us all on Banter. That was Matt Winesett. This is Max Tui. Up next, you'll hear from Max Frost. We are so thrilled that Ross Douthat's joining the show today. We all love Ross Douthat. And I was thinking before the interview, I was first introduced to him when he, in a Bill Maher clip, when he owned Bill Maher on a religion debate, defending God, by the way. How refreshing. The only other thing we have to say is please sign up for the Banter newsletter, banter at AEI.org. Send us an email. We've been getting lots of positive feedback, lots of interesting interactions with our listeners. We love it. Please write to us. Let us know what you're thinking and sign up for that newsletter. And a final note, Banter is heading to the Iowa Democratic Caucuses at the end of the month. And we know we have a lot of Midwestern listeners. In fact, Minnesota accounts for more listeners than any other state. So... For all those in Iowa or all those who know Iowa, please send us recommendations for any restaurants, bowling alleys, churches, bowling at bo- churches, D- diners, bars, diners, shooting ranges, shooting ranges, the most American things you can think of. We we are so excited for this trip. And without further ado, here is Ross Douthat. Governor Haley, thanks for coming in. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Mr. George Will, welcome. Glad to be with you. Arthur Brooks, welcome back. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Ambassador Wolfowitz, pleasure to have you. Nice to be here. Thanks. Ms. Peggy Noonan, thank you for coming. Guys, thank you very much for having me. Mr. Bolton, it's an honor for you to be with us today. Glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. J.D. Vance, welcome. Thank you for having me. Ross, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Ross, what's it like being a conservative columnist for the world's biggest liberal newspaper? What? What? What newspaper is that? The New York Times. Um, It's a lot of fun. I mean, the Times, I wouldn't describe the Times as a liberal newspaper. I would describe it as a newspaper whose audience perhaps tilts slightly to the center left. Perhaps. Maybe, maybe, hypothetically. Yeah, no, I mean, I write a column for people who generally disagree with me. And that can be tiring occasionally and it's the source of sometimes some misunderstandings and ruthless draggings on twitter.com but um, in general it's an amazing opportunity everyone should write for people they disagree with as an op-ed writer for the times do you hate when people label you do you hate labels like conservative when people say ross douth it's a conservative writer i have a mixture of feelings about that i mean on the one hand in the context of the op-ed page you know the point of a good op-ed page is to have a diversity of views and i'm totally comfortable with the fact that I exist in the ecosystem of the Times op-ed page to provide not just sort of conservative views, but my own particularly eccentric Hmm. style of conservatism, (laughs) whatever it is. And so in that sense, you know, you have to take ownership of it. I mean, I think what's sometimes frustrating is just, you know, the reality that because not just the Times, but the media in general, you know, sort of it's an institution or a, a world staffed heavily by liberals. And so there's Mm -hmm. sort of a default assumption of liberalism. And so when I'm described always as a conservative in, you know, in contexts where 
someone else would just be a columnist or a writer. There's, yeah, there's a sense of sort of pigeonholing. It would be nice to, you know, write books and not have the first paragraph of every review be like, well, a new book from the noted conservative and so mm-hmm. on. Every, everyone, you know, those, those, those frustrations do show up. But the actual reality of the op-ed page is that we were trying to assemble a diverse group of voices. And so you're filling a niche and offering a set of ideas, and I'm happy to take ownership of that. Yeah, I like how they have both you and Brett Stevens who are nominally conservative, and yet you probably disagree on a ton of issues. Well, we're not nominally conservative, well, yeah, right? But, well, no, but, but no, but no, you're right. I mean, I think Brett, Brett and I probably disagree about as almost as many issues as it's possible to disagree about, and yet... I think it's fair to say that we're both on the right. Certainly, we're both on the right in the context of the Times' audience, I think. You know, we've had some of our – we've been lucky to have some of our favorite writers on the show recently. Uh, Now you, but also Caitlin Flanagan, David French, Andrew Sullivan. And Brett Stevens, we should say. That's a good run. Brett Stevens. I'm sorry to bring things down. No, no. This is is the the crown jewel here, Ross. (laughs) But what we're um, – it shows also, I think, the shortcomings of labels. Not that people are only describing you as a conservative, but to put you, Brett Stevens, Andrew Sullivan, and David French all in the same category and say that this is a very telling label just isn't that fair to a nuanced writer. Do you agree? Yes, I do. But again, I don't want to, you don't want to get too sort of vain and self conscious about it, right? I mean, the reality is that. In the current landscape of sort of written debate, we are all on the right. And I mean, that Caitlin Flanagan is actually an interesting case because she, more than any of the other names you listed, is someone who I think is is center left functionally. She in, called herself a Democrat. She called she yeah, she votes for Democrats, but she would be perceived as on the right by her critics. Right. So that's there are there are a lot of cases like that in the current landscape. And then there are also cases of people who are sort of labeled or self-described as on the right who would be perceived by many people on the right as being functionally on the left, especially sort of pieces or parts of anti-Trump conservatism. So both of those things exist. But the, the reality is that it's no different from the debates within liberalism and the left, right? It's it's a sign of conservatism's health to some extent. And not that I'm saying conservatism is particularly healthy, but that French, Stevens, Douthat, and Sullivan all represent different varieties that overlap in certain places but disagree in others. What do you think of the argument that there's a lot of op-ed writers out there, a lot of conservative op-ed writers, and yet not many pro-Trump op-ed writers out there? Is Should... that an argument or a statement of Well, I, I guess we could take it either way. Um, but like the New York Times, for example. I guess the argument would be it's not fair that those people aren't represented when he's the president and they control such an important part of our country's politics today. Yeah, I think that's a reasonable point. I think that there are challenges that one of the challenges with Trump is that the op-ed, the nature of the op-ed columnist, it's sort of different from other journalism jobs and other think tank jobs and so on in that you have to write on the news more or less constantly. Mm. And, you know, the the challenge with the Trump administration is that it's, it's much easier to defend Trump or champion Trump at sort of a macro level, which is, I think, how a lot of his 
voters experience it, right? Like normal people don't pay attention to the week in and week out discourse in Washington, D.C. They just say, look, we elected him. He hasn't gotten us in any new wars. I like the judges he's appointed and the economy is good, right? And that's that sort of a voter's perspective on Trump. And you can write that perspective in an essay in like a monthly magazine. But week in and week out, the Trump White House is just like a dumpster fire, yeah. right? Like it's there's no policy. Trump, you know, rants in ways that even pro-Trump columnists, even, you know, the smartest pro-Trump columnists will sort of say, well, you know, he gets a little salty on Twitter. <laughs> there's no smart pro-Trump columnist who's writing a defense of all of Trump's crazier tweets. There's no pro-Trump columnist writing a defense of the fact that like half the cabinet is staffed by acting secretaries and so on. And so I, I think one defense you can offer of the paucity of conservative columnists is that it's just hard. It's hard to write week in and week out in, in his defense, not because he's necessarily indefensible, but because like the day-to-day -day workings of his White House are kind of indefensible. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people on the right say that it's like there's a tripwire when you're dealing with progressive audiences. And it's just a matter of time until you say the wrong thing and they come for your head and who knows what will happen. Mm -hmm. All the points of the thing with Brett Stevens recently and whatever it may be. Do you buy that at all or do you feel pretty comfortable? You can write all your ideas and not have your career ruined. Over. In other words, how come you have not been canceled yet? Well, I've been canceled repeatedly, <laughs> right? I mean, but is that, is I, that I've been canceled at least three times in the last year. I think that there's, well, one, I think the landscape has changed a little bit. You know, the internet, the Twitter mob, the sort of the, the effect that having Trump as president has had on the left um, has made it a little harder to be a conservative talking to liberal and left-wing audiences unless you're just in the sort of all Trump is bad all the time mode. And in that sense, I mean, I, you know, I don't, if I were like fully for Trump week in and week out, maybe it wouldn't work with my audience. I, I, I don't know. But I think it's totally, I mean, it's not, put it this way, if you're writing for people you disagree with a lot, it's not unreasonable to say, well, you have to have a strategy for writing for people you disagree with. And you're not going to maintain yourself in that kind of interesting, unique, provocative position if every week you're just, you know, going for maximal offensiveness and trying to find the tripwires. So I guess what I'd say is there are tripwires, obviously. Sometimes I find them, but I don't go out constantly seeking them. And I don't, I think it's reasonable not to. You're trying to find, if you're arguing for people and with people, you're trying to find spaces where you can have a productive argument. And I think those spaces are sometimes harder to find, but they, they still exist. And, you know, institutionally, Brett Stevens has been canceled many times, but he's still employed by the New York Times. Barry Weiss, my other colleague who is not Entirely popular with the online left, also is still employed by the New York Times. I'm still employed by the New York Times. Uh, so there are cases, obviously, where conservatives have sort of lost jobs or had jobs retracted or, you know, been literally canceled in this era. But there's also, there's also a reality that lots of conservative writers with sort of mainstream or left-leaning audiences have been canceled in the Twitter sense of the word, but not in the literal career-ending sense of the word. Yeah. Well, you and Brett are the reasons that I subscribe to The Times. I'm only paying $4 a month, so I don't know if that'll help you keep your job and prevent the, uh, the canceling when, when it comes. But one of the, I mean, one of the reasons I like... I'll tell my boss. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll... Uh, but I, one of the reasons I, I like your column a lot is you write about 
religion a lot, which not a lot of people do. And you've written a book, which I loved, Bad Religion, How We Became a Nation of Heretics. You're very kind. Yes. Uh, so you're talking to three twenty mid-20 people, and we have a lot of friends that are not especially religious anymore. Is this, I mean, is this happening across all generations where religiosity is just in steep decline, or is it really unique to the younger cohort? Here, I mean, here's one theory of what's happening, right, which is that you had this kind of shock in American religious culture, basically in your parents or my parents, somewhere between your parents and my parents coming of age, basically, where some combination of the sexual revolution shifts the sort of disestablishment of Protestantism by the Supreme Court through school prayer decisions, changes in the mass media, all kinds of changes in the culture, substantially weakened institutional Christianity. And then for that cohort, there remained a sort of what you might call this sort of weak attachment, right? The sort of you know, you would identify as a Methodist and go to church four times a year. You'd be a Christmas and Easter Catholic. You'd have sort of a real but thinned out relationship to your faith. And what's happening in you guys' cohort is that the children of people who had that thinned out relationship are coming of age. And it turns out that if you grow up with a thinned out relationship, then your relationship will probably thin even further and you'll, in many cases, cease to identify with your parents' faith. But it's less that it's this sort of just the millennial generation shock and more that it's kind of an aftershock of what was still, I think, fundamentally the bigger shift in the 60s and 70s. But then there's also the question of like, what does it mean to be, to have no religious affiliation, right? Because this this was the, the substance of the panel I was moderating today was the idea that there is a kind of distinctive millennial religion that, again, isn't just millennial, it's American, but it's sort of more pervasive among millennials that's very do-it-yourself, God-within, wellness, spirituality, has some theological content, doesn't take an institutional form, still influenced by Christianity, maybe is turning post-Christian. Um, but I think one of the big, you know, one of the big shifts in American life that's affecting your cohort is that it used to be that there was this sort of institutional core in American religion and you would get these sort of waves of freelancing, entrepreneurship, do-it-yourself religion, religious hyper-individualism, you know, going back to Emerson and, you know, Joseph Smith and all the religious entrepreneurs and figures in the 19th century. But usually that energy would eventually be reabsorbed into institutions or new institutions would be founded. And with, you know, millennial era religion, what's striking is how post-institutional it is for now, how hard it is to see like Gwyneth Paltrow and Goop or Jordan Peterson sort of Jungian stuff like becoming a church in the old-fashioned American way. Like Joseph Smith and Mary Baker Eddy, they founded churches. They were religious experimenters, but they left behind this strong institutional legacy and that's that seemed to be that seems to be what's missing more than sort of belief or supernatural interest per se. I think for people, especially forty and under, in the U.S. now, you know, you, know, you talk a lot about the decline of religion as an institution, and I was watching an interview that Bill Maher did of President Obama last night, an old one, and he just was kicking back, with just Maher kicking and Obama. back. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, man. The the proper way to unwind, and he he 
made the point that was interesting to President Obama because I've grown up with this narrative of cultures becoming increasingly secular, religious values aren't really recognized. And he pointed out, he said, uh, you know, President Obama, you've done a lot recognizing the non-religious, the atheists as a legitimate group in America, but we're still underrepresented. He said it's hard to be an atheist politician. You're kind of canceled, especially in Midwest and the South. And he he gave an interesting perspective of what about not necessarily the discrimination, but in a lot of positions, a lot of communities, atheists are actually not accepted. Yeah. I mean, that used to be more true than it is today, right? And there What is used to be? Like 60 years ago, even 30 years ago. I mean, I think Marr is right that uh, sort of in terms of people who hold public office in the U.S., there has always been a bias against atheists. It's been stronger in some polls than bi- biases against minority religions. And there's a sense in which sort of, especially sort of a hard atheism is distrusted in public figures. Now, you know, in terms of sort of practical discrimination, uh, especially in the last 50 or 60 years, I think that's a lot rarer. But, you you know, you definitely do have this dynamic where that that was sort of the normative dynamic when I was coming of age politically was the idea that America was this deeply religious country with the secular elite. So, right, so it was easy to be an atheist at Harvard and hard to be an atheist in most American communities. And I think that's changed. It was always somewhat exaggerated, but it's changed over the last 25 years as those communities have become less traditionally Christian, less traditionally religious. But it's also, you know, one of the one of the great things about living in a country of 300 million people with all its complexities is that there are contexts and situations in which everyone can feel oppressed, right? And this is the, one of the defining dynamics of Trump-era politics is that everybody thinks that their side is on the verge of extinction and being crushed. And so conservative Christians vote for Trump because they're afraid their religious liberties are in peril. And then secular liberals feel like Trump is taking us down the path to fascism, and um, and that's that's a sentiment that somewhat it's been building across my lifetime. But the scale of the perceived threat on each side is multiplied. I think the internet has something to do with it in the sense that the internet there's always a story, right? In your in your Twitter feed or Facebook feed, there's always a story where your side is being treated badly by the other side. So you can all you can build a picture out of, you know, incidents scattered around the country where any particular group is on the ropes and, you know, losing right. out and so on. Is, do you think there's like a right path religious institutions should be taking because for, I think most millennials kind of look at it and they're like all right, Catholic Church, sex scandals. Evangelicals, anti-gay, anti-trans, anti-evolution, whatever they may, whatever they may say. Yet somehow pro-Trump, as a lot of people. Yeah, know. and then you know the other Presbyterians or Episcopalians, you know, kind of lacking any direction, flailing, shedding followers. So, is there anything they could be doing, or is this just a natural product of, like you said, these societal shifts, and the church is just kind of flying by the wayside, or they, should they be doing something differently? I Not mean, one sex scandal, sex, yeah, you, <laughs> getting rid of the sex scandals, probably <laughs> that would be good advice. This is a hot take. Probably a good start. <laughs> um, and I think, yeah, I think there's no question that the sex abuse scandal has had a particular impact on Catholicism and made the Catholic position in the U.S. sort of just somewhat justifiably more difficult. I don't think, you know, I'm a 
conservative Catholic, whatever that means. But but I guess what it means specifically is that I think there are sort of limits to the kind of adaptation that Christian churches can take up and, you know, waking up one morning and declaring, you know, I'm pro-trans and hell doesn't exist is not like the path to spiritual, I mean, to sort of demographic growth and renewal. But that doesn't mean that sort of maintaining a strong connection to historic orthodoxy and belief will naturally lead to demographic growth either, right? It may just be that this sort of deep trend towards individualism and post-institutionalism and everything else is just a kind of asset, at least in this period, for, for religious institutions. I mean, I think practically sort of independent of the culture war debates and theological issues, one of the big stories lately is how religion has sort of participated in this educational segmentation in American life, the, you know, this sort of hollowed out middle class and then this, you know, reasonably thriving upper middle class and a working class that's in, you know, various kinds of social disarray. So the stereotype, again, 25 years ago um, was that you had had this sort of secularized upper class and this pious church-going working class. And the reality is that religious practice, like church-going, church membership, church involvement is often not a like, you know, Harvard elite phenomenon, but a sort of upper middle class phenomenon now. And working class communities are more secularized, not in a Richard Dawkins, I don't believe in God anymore way, but in a sort of, you know, weakened institutions, people don't go to church you know, churches don't have that much influence anymore. And I think that's an area where, you know, if I were in charge of like some kind of structural role at the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops or something, I would be thinking about like, well, how do we treat both immigrant communities, but also sort of working class communities on that have fallen on hard times as a kind of you know, missionary field. But it's all really hard because, you know, you have these sort of legacy institutions that are trying to adapt. Like, you know, Catholicism is institutionally built to be this really big church and most likely Catholic numbers have declined a bit lately. There's going to be a pretty steep falling off over the next 15 years as this sort of trend of millennial disaffiliation and generational turnover works Despite itself out. the increase in Latin populations... Here. In Latin American populations, yes, it doesn't. That has offset. That has sort of temporarily offset a decline in white right. church going. But um, you're saying that's no longer going to be that offsetting will not. One, that population is subject to the same trends as every other population. So there's you know some Latino Catholics become Pentecostalists, some right. secularize. Two. Despite the border surges in the last couple of years, generally immigration from Latin America has declined and is likely to continue to decline over the next 20 years for because their demographics look more like, like ours. And there's more immigration from East Asia to the U.S. Um, and three, the downward traje trajectory of white Catholicism or Anglo-Catholicism, whatever you want to call it, is likely to become a bit steeper. So, yeah, it doesn't, at least as far as I can tell, it doesn't offset. But even if it did offset... It would still be a big institutional problem for the church because, you know, like take the Archdiocese of New York, right? If you're replacing one generation of upper middle class, fourth generation immigrant sort of people who've ascended the American ladder, who are sending their kids to private schools and working in private equity, if that generation dies or you know, retires and the next generation, their children don't give money to the church anymore, and you're replacing that with... Con congregants who are 
you know, first generation immigrants from Latin America, you're not your your funding stream is you're going from a church that has a strong financial base to a church that has a weak one, and suddenly your schools, your mm. churches, your hospitals, your charities all have to adjust. So even with unless you could find a population of you know extremely rich Catholics somewhere in the world to have them and have them all emigrate, immigration doesn't even if it offsets it doesn't undo that that sort of financial institutional challenge. All right. We'll, we'll keep an eye out for those rich Catholic immigrants and see where we can find them. But I Mon- Monaco, I think. Monaco. That's right. We can all, the entire population of Liechtenstein <laughs> can be. Well, I, I like what you said earlier, where even when people don't identify with the church as much anymore, there's still that kind of mysticism and neo-paganism or, or whatever people call it now that still exists latently. I mean, I'm always struck by the same people that will look at you like a lunatic if you try right. to explain transubstantiation. Well, then in the next sentence, talk about how well, I'm a Virgo, so I meant to. I meant to be with the Pisces, or and like there's still this kind of mysticism and and things out. Well, the, the, so the astrology is actually kind of new, or, or it's not new, but it's sort of so like it's it's like the 70s come again. So when I was in college, nobody talked about astrology. Astrology was like this thing that the baby boomers were into. Like my parents knew all their friends' signs, and they were like, "Oh, he's a Pisces, and he's a Virgo." Like yeah. people would talk about that when I was a kid. But by the time you get to the 90s and two th- early 2000s, it's just – especially among educated Americans, it's sort of dead. So the last five years have been a real I'm, I'm astrology st- resurgence. I mean I'm struck by the amount of educated people in my peer group that actually talk about it. Yeah. Well, I, I think it, that never that, – I, I mean think, I don't want to say never, but nobody in my – you know, non-religious peer group talked about astrology in 2002. I, I mean, I definitely think part of it is people are sometimes trying to be funny or they participate in this because it's, sure. it's cultural, it's cool. But I do think there is people who deny the spiritual world are doing a lot of things that would suggest they actually believe in it or right. they have that as that component of their life. Yeah, I mean, they, they or they aren't denying the spiritual world. They're just denying your hierarchical church's idea about what happens to right. bread to bread and wine when the when the priest says says the words of consecration. Right? I mean, that's yeah. I mean, I think there's an it's an open and probably unanswerable question with some of this stuff. Like, where does play acting and fun and uh-huh. an actual like I'm a Virgo and it matters to my life begin. And, you know, the same is true with like, you know, you put a hex on Brett Kavanaugh. Like, is that serious? Is it not serious? And, and you know your astrology sign, by the way? Oh, yeah, I'm a Sagittarius. Sagittarius. Um, but I only know that because people talked about it when I was like nine years old in my in my parents' world. But no, I was driving to the airport to fly down here today and they were doing the daily horoscope. And maybe they always did that on drive time Right. AM radio or FM radio, but I don't remember it. And they said I, today was going to be a really good day for me. For Sagittarius, <laughs> it was a ten. Well, you met us. So yeah, I did. Well, this is this is the ten. No one, they didn't. No one had lower than a seven. <laughs> Everyone was having a pretty good day, right. but the Sagittarius right. was having right. a it's really like good cookies. day. When, when's the last time we got a bad fortune cookie? I got a really bad one. Oh, I, yeah, occasionally you do. <laughs> yeah, that's the genius of the fortune. I hate my lucky <laughs> numbers. Like... I always get fourteen every yeah. time. Yeah. But speaking of time. We have, you know, we have maybe one more question and then we go to the rapid fire. Max Frost. Yeah. So back. I know you write about decadence in society today and you talked about it with Star Wars. Now, one thing I absolutely hate are the new Star Wars movies. I <laughs> yes. think it symbolizes so much that's wrong with our whole culture yes. society. Yes. And I'm thrilled to be in the presence of somebody who I think agrees with me. Yes. But what's your reasoning? Can you talk a bit about it? 
Sure. So I I have this new book coming out next month called The Decadent Society, which your listeners can pre-order on Amazon.com. And the definition of decadence that I'm using, which is sort of eccentric, but sort of not, is not just like luxury and plushness, but but something more specific, an idea of stagnation, drift, and repetition at a high level of wealth and technological proficiency, basically. And so that, to me, is what the new Star Wars movies are. They are incredibly sleek, expensive, you know, special effect-driven. They're, they're something that only a technologically advanced society could produce, right? You can't produce the Star Wars movies unless you are proficient and developed and impressive in certain ways. But as narratives, as cultural products, they are literally just repeating a sort of a genuinely innovative trilogy that now came out, you know, almost 30, 30 years ago, basically, and sort of almost beat for beat. I mean, the, the Force Awakens is literally the same movie as the original Star Wars. Trash. Yeah. The, you know, the rise of Skywalker ends with exactly the same kind of scene as Return of the Jedi, the same confrontation with the same villain, with the same, like, will he or won't he stick with the dark side yeah. character. I do think the – I'm an Adam Driver fan. Uh, I think the sort of relationship at the center of the movies between he and Ray is is not bad. It is sort of interesting. But generally, I mean, you know, there was all this debate about The Last Jedi and whether it was, you know, had broken with the spirits of the movies or whether the only people who disliked it were Russian bots and racists. It was like this. But it was like an argument about nothing. Last Jedi – was bad in some of the same ways that The Force Awakens was bad and some of the same ways that The Last Skywalker is bad. It's all the narcissism of small differences. And what it does is it makes you – it's not that you appreciate the prequels more. The prequels are still bad movies. Oh, but no, the pre- lost me there. But the prequel – you like the prequels? Well, I love Revenge of the Sith. But the prequels tried to tell an original story. Right. right. No, exactly. The, the pre- Lucas was trying – of who Jar Jar Binks? No, but like they, there's that? actually an interesting story about how right. a Republic he was trying to do something. Empire. He wanted to right. tell a di- the story of the first trilogy is a sort of classic adventure story of a plucky rebellion defeating an empire, and the story he wanted to do in the prequels was yeah a story of decline and fall and sort of a per- one person's corruption reflecting a wider corruption. And maybe if he'd had Adam Driver playing Anakin and a decent scriptwriter, it would have been better. But <laughs> Uh, Revenge of the Sith is not a good movie, and that's oh. an, I, that. That is this is the opinion. This is like the contrarian pro prequel opinion yeah. that people have, where they're like, "Oh, the first two weren't good, but Revenge of the Sith is pretty well, good." I mean, I, that, it's not. Revenge of the Sith it's, came out right when we were coming of age, so it was like the first movie, real movie, PG thirteen. I saw in theaters probably, so I, uh-huh. I loved it. He's backing well, away from is, his opinion. He's, backing he's away. such a pl- pro this number is, three. Well, this is like when I um, have you ever seen Willow? No, I've not. No. Willow, I think George Lucas might have produced it. Really? It came out in the late 80s, and it was the only, it was like a total Lord of the Rings ripoff fantasy movie with, you know, then state-of-the-art special effects with Val Kilmer in it. And and I saw it when I was like eight in theaters, and I was a fantasy nerd, and it was like the only fantasy movie anyone had made that I'd seen until Lord of the Rings movies came out. So for like 10 years after I saw it, I had this incredibly fond, intense attachment to it. But then I saw it again. <laughs> And it was terrible. <laughs> so I just want you to consider the possibility. Well, like, 
when Obi-Wan Kenobi is like, I have the high ground. Like, that's not a good movie, man. <laughs> he did, and that matters in what it matters all the time. That's right. Now you're right. All right, we got a rapid fire round real quick before we all finish things. All right, I'll, I'll kick it off. You ready? No, but go ahead. <laughs> all right, Godfather or Goodfellas? Godfather. One or two? Um, I used to be pretentious and say two, but I think the answer is one. Will Tom Brady return to the Patriots? Push. Oh, no, no. Yes or no? Um, I'm a Pats fan, by the way. I'm a Pats fan as well. Oh, I know. That's why. Um, I say no. Breaking news. New York Times says Tom Brady. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> Best movie of the year. That I've seen once upon a time in Hollywood. I love that answer. Who would you want to play you in a movie? I mean, unfortunately, I think, you know, the old, you know, given how my body is trending, it'll have to be the old, bearded, slightly drunken Orson Welles. <laughs> I was thinking Leo myself. Wow. <laughs> no, when I was when I was a kid uh, in the Titanic era, I, I did look a little bit like Leo, but like his ill-favored cousin. <laughs> so girls would be like, oh, you look like Leo, except not as not, not cute. This is a humble brag if I've ever heard one. I know. I, yeah, could, it's, yeah, I yeah. could see Michael Keaton pulling you off. Just all right, we got to go. We got to keep going, though. You've teased this before. When can we expect your own fantasy novel series that will rival Game of Thrones? That I have to say no comment on that. Well, I know you've tweeted about having a draft at some point. So I want every every uh, I literally made this joke upstairs at AI. Oh. Every political columnist is either a failed politician or a failed novelist. Um, we haven't tried yet. So, so there is. Yeah, there is. There is some possibility that someday I will be a real novelist and not a failed one. But I. I can't answer that question. It cannot be worse than season eight, so you'll be you'll be fine. I think. I mean, no, it's it would be if if I published a fantasy novel, it would be like competently mediocre. Okay. I well, definitely. we are waiting with bated breath to read your mediocre fantasy novel. <laughs> Thank you. Sure, Thank fantastic. You. Thank you for joining it. Banter. Thank you for having Thank me. Thank you so much. What a pleasure. All right, as always, thank you, Ross. Thank you for listening. Please, if you enjoy this podcast, like us, rate us, email us. And please leave a review on iTunes. It is very important to us. We're going to read out two comments we have here this week. First one is a five-star review entitled New Intro. And then they proceed to rip the new intro. <laughs> Old intro is catchy. New intro is maybe most insider DC cringe ever. Come on, dudes. The world is bigger than Mass Ave. This is, you know, I'm very dubious about this email. I think it might have been someone from inside the building who had a hand in the old intro. Because who else would know mm. that we are? This is from the deep state. This is. This is. Who else would know that we're on Massachusetts? We're being Avenue? thwarted from above and below. That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, otherwise, that's a lot of legwork going into an iTunes podcast review. All right. Now on to our second comment. Five stars again. Headline, I am and will always be surfer bro. Comment, thank you. I know this one came from the deep state. So, I'm sure it did. And, uh... It's kind of like the anonymous Trump op-ed. We simply will not know who wrote it because we can't track it down. So anyways, our segment this week is Watch, Read, Listen. This, again, is a segment where we each go around and talk about something that we watched, read, or listened to in the last week that you should know about. And Matt Winesett is going to kick us off. All right, I have a bit of a counter watch this time. I'm recommending you do not watch the New York Times endorsement special last night that aired last night or <laughs> by the time you hear this a couple nights ago. It was the most navel gazily BCS bowl drag out American Idol finalist <laughs> announcement of all time. We were supposed to get the New York Times announcement at 10 p.m. Instead, we tune into FX, I don't know, odd channel to broadcast it on. And they make us sit through a whole hour before they announce an endorsement. And an endorsement is supposed to be, by the way, you tell voters 
who they should vote for. The New York Times apparently does not know what that means because they told people to support or that they're endorsing two different people, Warren and Klobuchar, because they represent two wings of the party. And they say the party should make up their mind over which wing, the progressive wing or the practical wing, they should support. The whole point of an endorsement is to tell people who they should support, and right. they totally punted the ball on they that. They tell the party to make up their mind by telling them how not to make up their exactly. mind. Exactly. I, mean, right. I mean, it felt like LeBron James' decision, but less interesting, where they make us sit through an hour where they kind of show clips of some of the interviews. So endorsing a candidate, you're, n- you're not endorsing an agenda. You're endorsing a candidate. They met with all of them. They had extensive interviews. They talked about the process. Just endorse somebody. So, someone had a great uh, tweet they pointed out. I never want to hear the New York Times editorial board talk again, bemoaning how politicians cannot make tough choices. This was the easiest choice in the history of the editorial board. Pick a candidate that you think people should vote for. Outstanding point. As the uncultured millennial I am, I will use a watch this week, and I will talk about an Instagram video about 25 seconds in length that the president shared last week after LSU won the national title for football. Now, the video was the LSU football team dancing to a rap song in the Oval Office, I think an LSU wide receiver posted it. Jamar Chase, yes. Jamar Chase, and the president reposted it. And now a lot of people are like, what is the president doing reposting this video? The video is frankly kind of absurd to me that the president shared this. But it doesn't, you know, it doesn't bother me. I found it to be refreshing almost. After all the repeated boycotts by national championship teams not coming to the White House, these guys are there. They're just having fun. They're all 20 years old, 21 years old, dancing. They're with the president. They're all smiling when he's giving his thing. A breath of fresh air. I liked it. I'd recommend you watch the video. 25 seconds, I think. You can find it online or Instagram. 100%. And, and real quickly, you think about some of the people boycotted Steve Kerr. Alex Cora, Steve Kerr apparently had a different standard when it came to Chinese ideals in, in the whole Hong Kong controversy over the summer. And then, of course, Alex Cora, a little too concerned with the buzzer to realize that maybe he should go to the White House with this team. Elaborate on that. I don't think most of our listeners know who Cora is. So Alex Cora was the manager of the Red Sox when they won the 2018 World Series. But more importantly now, he was the bench coach for the Astros when they won the World Series in 2017. And as the as has recently been uncovered, the Astros cheated on their path to championship in 2017, stealing signs and then using buzzers or other signals to communicate to their batters what pitch was coming next. And Cora refused to go to the White House because, what was his rationale? Because the president is a liar and a cheater. <laughs> yeah, well, in any event, watch the video. I enjoyed it. But, Max, what do you think? What do you have this week? Watch. Mine is a read. And the book I'm reading was given to me by Aunt Betsy. Shout out Aunt Betsy. And it's called The Seventh Flag. I'm just going to talk about the historical premise of the book, which is in the mid-19th century, Franklin Pierce decided we need camels in the cavalry. So he started a camel corps. And they brought over hundreds of camels from the Middle East. Along with the camels, they brought some Arabs who knew how to handle the camels. And so all of a sudden you have some Muslims moving over to Texas, Arizona, at that time, our Southwest Territories. And what's fascinating is how they've assimilated since. And one powerful assimilation tool is war. It's a very bad tool in almost every other sense, but it creates a bond between people. Like we were putting our lives on the line for the same side. And I guarantee you in a battlefield, in a foxhole, those ethnic cultural differences go away and they can glue together different groups that previously would not have been glued together. And so very powerful reminder, great book, and it traces some of these Muslim families in the 20th century generations. By who? Who's the writer? Sid Ballman Jr., actually national security guy who writes novels on the side. 
Where are the camels now? Do we have any more in America? They were sold to circuses, uh, wealthy landowners. So, so there's no, there's nothing just wild. Camels I've never around. No, and I, I think it would be really cool if they were. I don't know if they're bad at reproducing or something because I don't know why they would. There would be hundreds. Oh, a lot. I think were sold back. Well, it's, internationally. But it's just interesting. We don't have any camels in our deserts because right. deserts elsewhere in the world. There's camels everywhere. In India, in the Middle East, all over the place. It's always been a dream of mine. Somebody would import kangaroos, and then they would just reproduce, <laughs> and then run rampant over their Great Plains. I don't see how that could ever go wrong. But if you guys want any more information <laughs> on Franklin Pierce, camels in the American West, anything like that, banter at AEI.org is the place to find out more. We will send you his Wikipedia page within an instant. Yeah, thank you all for listening. Again, we have some great episodes coming up. Another one coming out later this week with... You hear that on Thursday, another episode coming out. With Anthony Scaramucci a.k.a. The Mooch. That's right. It is right. a terrific episode. We can't wait to be That is here. right. He's on the show. So Get we'll be, ready. We'll be back this week. Look forward to seeing you then. All the best.